Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Priest King. Our study on Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. For more information and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Today we're going to start a new sermon series on Psalm 110. I'm excited about it. I hope that you get some, I hope you're as excited as I am because I'm a, a little bit nerded out this week as I was studying. Um, I told Haley that I hope, I hope it's as meaningful to you as it's been to me because I've enjoyed it. So go ahead and flip to Psalm 110 if you want to go there. You can, you can just kind of hang out there in your scripture. We're going to read some of the passages, but Psalm 110 is really where you want to be. So Lord, we honor your word, your holy infallible word as inspired and God breathed. Lord, we've come this morning to encounter you, Holy Spirit, to hear your voice. So we ask that you would speak, that you would move. We just declare, as always, we need you in this time, Holy Spirit. We didn't come to hear the wisdom, intellect, or humor of a man. We came to hear the word of God, the holy, inspired, infallible word of God. So Lord, I ask that you would guard my lips, hide me behind the cross, Lord. Lord, anything that I stumble or mutter through that's not from your heart, I pray that it would pass from one ear out the other. But everything that is from the throne room of heaven, we ask that it would cut, it would pierce. We ask that you would have your way in our lives, Jesus. Bend us for the glory of Jesus. Break us for the progress of the gospel. We love you, Holy Father. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, in my reading this week, um, I read a story from a Scottish missionary named John G. Patson, and I wanted to share it with you. Patton, I'm sorry. Patton gave his life preaching the gospel to a Niwa island in the South Sea in the Pacific that had never uh, heard the gospel. The gospel hadn't been brought there yet. It, this island in particular, along with the little region, was known for cannibalism, and they would, from time to time, eat the flesh of an enemy that had been conquered. They sacrificed widows and children throughout various rituals out of this spiritual fear, you know, to appease the spirits. Missionaries before Patton had been eaten in this region of islands. There were two missionaries in particular who were murdered and eaten. Um, Although some other islands in the region at this point had had great missionary movements. And so there's this kind of history of people being martyred in this region, but also the gospel's beginning to catch traction, but no one has really seen breakthrough in Aniwa yet. And so Patton decides to head there. Anyway, long story short, he has great success on the island over 15 years. They say that literally the entire island turned to Jesus. He translated the Bible into the native language, opened orphanages, taught the scripture over 15 years, period. He saw the entire island turned to Jesus. But when he had announced in his early years that he was headed to this region and to this island, an elderly man rebuked him and said, The cannibals, you'll surely be eaten by the cannibals. And Patton's biographer said that he responded, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that... I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I may be eaten by cannibals, but you're soon to be eaten by worms. And I'd rather live for Jesus 
The Christian tradition is flooded with these types of stories where men and women who would gladly look death in the face to honor and serve their king. Men and women who would look even cannibals in the eye to preach the gospel. I saw a quote from Napoleon this week. Um, He said this, Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force, he said. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And that's quite a true statement. Even at this hour, there are millions who would give their lives for Jesus and for his kingdom who are profoundly committed to his cause and to the advancement of his dominion. What kind of king fosters such loyalty from the people he leads? What kind of Lord deserves this level of commitment and honor? When the early Christians went to flames for the gospel of Jesus. Who did they think they were dying for? What kind of Messiah? When faced with that question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? The early Christians often found their answers in Psalm 110. And by consequence, Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament, of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with Old Testament references. Some say up to 75% of the New Testament is a direct reference to the Old Testament. The most often quoted passages of all of that is Psalm 110. They thought of these words penned by King David. They meditated on them. They believed it to be totally about Jesus. And they quoted Psalm 110 often. When you find an Old Testament passage that's quoted that heavily by the New Testament authors and by the early church community, you might ought to stop, take some time, and try to understand that Old Testament passage. Somebody say, praise God. And so we're going to spend um, just four weeks in Psalm 110 as we work up to Easter and, and, I, and I pray that we can kind of get our hands around this text in the way that the early church had their hands around this text. Jesus quoted this psalm himself. Paul alludes to it on multiple occasions. The author of Hebrews lived in Psalm 110. I've read some commentators suggest that the book of Hebrews is an entire explanation of Psalm 110. That it's just this spilling out of Psalm 110. That may be a stretch, but it's certainly true that that Hebrews um, is playing with the themes of Psalm 110. So let's just say it's very important to your understanding of the New Testament that you understand Psalm 110. And and I'm praying that it becomes a significant portion of Scripture to us as it was to the early church. The kind of revelation that caused men and women to look cannibals in the face and say, worms are cannibals, potato, potato. All right, let's pray. Oh, we already prayed. We, we love prayer around here. We like to pray. Um, believe in the power of prayer. Yes, we do. Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, speak. Psalm 110. Let's read Psalm 110 together. We're going we're gonna to read the whole psalm, and we'll focus on verse 1 today. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb as of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, this psalm is what 
theologians call a royal psalm. It's about the lordship of the coming king. It's commonly quoted, Psalm 110 is commonly quoted right next to Psalm 2. You know the psalm that says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves up and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Notice that the psalmist says that the nations, they gather together to plot against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. The Lord God has an anointed ruler. And when people plot against God, they by consequence plot against this chosen anointed ruler. And when people plot against the anointed chosen ruler, they are by consequence plotting against God. God has ordained an and anointed and chosen a particular king called, this is called a royal psalm. In verse 7 of Psalm 2, it concludes, it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That line means today you have become my unique chosen ruler. So we find this tradition or category of psalm in which the idea of God ordaining a unique king to rule, those ideas are explored. G. Campbell Morgan, a great preacher um, of past years, wrote that this psalm is purely, speaking of Psalm 110, this psalm is purely messianic. The fulfillment of every word is in Christ. Charles Spurgeon called this psalm a picture of the king's coronation. This is the day that the king was seated on his throne and given his scepter to rule and the people became subject to his dominion. The day I was set in to be the pastor here, um, my daughters called it the coronation day, you know, because Elsa from Frozen has a big coronation day. Um, and everyone got a real good cook out of that but me because I didn't think it was funny. Um, Spurgeon says that's what's going on in Psalm 110. This is the coronation day of the king where the king is seated on his throne in the heavenly courts. It's an interesting concept. When early Christians referred to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, these are the themes that were running through their heads. That on Jesus' coronation day, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That God declared, the Lord says to my Lord, Lord declare to the Son, sit down at my right hand. In this great position of honor and glory. And so when the early saints said, he's my Lord, this is where their mind ran. They saw themselves living in obedience to his authority and working in stride with his agenda for his kingdom. To deny him was to deny the king of the universe, their master. When they used the phrase Lord and Savior, it meant something to them. Now, today we're going to focus on line one of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We'll start with the introduction to the phrase, the Lord says to my Lord. Matthew chapter 22 verses 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. 
The first Lord that appears in Psalm 110 is the Tetragrammaton, the, the four consonants that make up the, the name of God that God declared to Moses. Um, uh, yod Hey vav Hey is the Hebrew translated Y-H-W-H. The, the vowels are never recorded in Scripture, and tradition says that Jews never actually said the name. So that first Lord, if you'll notice, if, if you have a Bible open, or if you guys can put it back on the screen, that first Lord will come through your scripture, usually in all capitals. So in my scripture here, it's capital L, and then the font drops a size, but it's still capital O-R-D. And that's supposed to tell you that that is, is reference for the holy name of God given to Moses. So that first Lord... Um, it, it, it's the tetragrammaton. It's the word, the word Yahweh. The second Lord, so the Lord... The holy name given to Moses. The, the God of Moses says to my Adonai. That second Lord is the word Adonai. Adonai is a title almost always used to describe God. So it's a title that means God. It's a title that can mean Lord, Master, or Owner. You guys can't tell that it's all cap because everything's all cap. So that's beautiful. Um, nailed it. <laughs> the Lord... Oh, we're going back anyway. Okay, so so the Lord, the holy name given to, God, to, to Moses, Yahweh says to my God or my master or my owner. The name Jehovah, which came from the King James translation, the name the name Jehovah is what what the King James translators did. Again, the the tetragrammaton, the four consonants, were they never had vowels in Scripture, um, and so what they did was they took the vowels from the name. Odin, uh, Adonai, and they took those vowels and they inserted them in the consonants of the Tetragrammaton and they came out with the word Jehovah. Um, there's nothing wrong with using the name Jehovah. It's perfectly fine. Transliteration or the idea of bringing, one na- bringing a name or a word from one language to another is a complicated process and it often gets a little muddy. And so using the word Jehovah is perfectly fine. Um, and when the King James uses Jehovah, that's where the Tetragrammaton is. Jehovah is, 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 is not a correct translation. All, all scholars agree on that. Um, because they literally just took the, the words from Adonai, the vowels, and they shoved them in um, to make this new word. The, the name is most likely Yahweh. Or, or, or some say Yahweh. Um, a lot of people want to argue with you about the way that that's pronounced and they want to claim some type of spiritual authority because their sect or their little cult knows exactly how that name's pronounced. Um, I want to tell you just to ignore those people because those conversations are really fruitless, I know, because I have them all the time. <laughs> Haley was waiting on me the other day. I went to run an errand and she said, what took you so long? I said, I was arguing with a man about the name of God. All that to say, that's what the, what that, what that line says is Yahweh says to my Adonai, or Yahweh says to my God, or my Lord. Jesus asked the crowd, how is it that the Messiah is David's son, yet David calls him God, master, owner, or Lord? How is it that David refers to his descendant as his Adonai? The people have no response, but the line of reasoning leads the listener to question the nature of the Messiah. How will the Messiah be the son of David and the Adonai of David? The appropriate answer to this question is found in the doctrine of the Incarnation. David calls the Messiah his Adonai because the future Messiah would be David's creator in the flesh. Jesus is the son of David, fully man, fully of the line of Judah. Jesus is also the unique son of God, fully God, fully deity. 
Jesus is not an Arnold Palmer. He's not half sweet tea and half lemonade. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is the descendant of David from the line of Judah, the son of David. He is also the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, David's Adonai. I was trying to talk to my kids this week. I try to teach them from time to time. I was trying to teach them about the Trinity. And so I had all three of my girls. I have three girls, a five-year-old who will be six next week, and one that just turned four in a year and a half. And I have them lined up on the couch. And I was standing before them as the great honored professor. And they were my little three students. And so I say to them, I asked my, you know, my class of three, I said, how many gods are there? And my oldest says, there's one God. And I say, yes. I said, how many persons make up that Godhead? My oldest says, there are three persons in Godhead. She didn't quite use that language, but but she got it right. I said, yes. And I said, who are those three persons that make up the Godhead? And my baby, the one and a half year old, screamed, me. (laughs) And I shouted, heresy. (laughs) And the kids, they they belly laughed for like 20 minutes as if they knew what the word heresy meant. They just (laughs) laughed and laughed and laughed. There are certain passages in the scripture that cause our minds to ponder the triune nature of God. They work in unison and build towards the New Testament's full revelation that our God is totally one, yet he exists in three persons. This is one of those texts that causes your mind to go, how is it that Yahweh is talking to David's God or David's Lord or David's master? How does Yahweh have a conversation with David's God? Don't miss the fact that David is the iconic king of Israel. He's the most revered king in Israel's history. He's the gold standard of what it means to be a king in Israel. David didn't, did not receive his, his kingdom as an inheritance from his father. David did not receive his kingdom from conquering some region or overthrowing the previous king. David received his kingdom through a prophetic word about a coming king through the line of Judah and through the pouring out of holy anointing oil from the prophet Samuel on his head. David didn't receive his kingdom through his father. He received his kingdom as the heavenly father uniquely chose him, uniquely anointed him. The holy oil poured by the prophet Samuel on his head. David is a uniquely preferred king. And even that uniquely preferred king bows his knee before Messiah and calls him Adonai. Jesus says to the crowd, think about this for a while. David calls Messiah Adonai. They all stumble and marvel as Jesus draws the mystery out of this text and they go home scratching their heads saying, how is it that David's son is David's master? And furthermore, is Jesus that master? So the question today lies for us. What about us? Why should we surrender our lives to Jesus with willful obedience? One, we learn from Psalm 110 that David bows before him, refers to him as his God, his master, and his Lord. As David is chosen and anointed by Samuel the prophet, the Messiah is even more chosen, even greatly more, splendidly more anointed. He is, he is greater. He is superior. He is the supreme Messiah. As David is the gold standard, oh, Jesus is the gold standard. He is the wonderful chosen one. 
Jesus is crowned king of heaven and earth. His throne is in the courtroom of heaven, the place of supreme authority. Next, he is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is one with the Father. He is co-eternal and co-equal with God. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture, and that is the consistent testimony of church history. That is the, the, the phrasing of the Council of Nicaea that the early church brought together. I want you to grab a hold of that language. That's the language of orthodoxy. He is co-eternal and co-equal, the Nicene Creed. He is not created. He has been from eternity past, and he will be to eternity future. He is one with God. Say it with me this morning. Co-equal, co-eternal. That's the language of orthodoxy. If any man or woman knocks on your door to to share with you about their cult and they want to diminish Jesus to a mere created being, you say co-equal and co-eternal. Third, Jesus deserves all glory and honor because he is your creator. He gives you life. He sustains you day in and day out. All of your gifts and your talents have their origin in him. You belong to Jesus and are fully indebted to him. Yahweh says to my Adonai, when you use the phrase, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, do you mean with David that Jesus is your Adonai, your owner, your master, and your God? Do you mean that it's your greatest delight to submit to him as king? Do you mean that it's your joy to belong to his kingdom? Next, let's consider what Yahweh declared to David's Adonai. So the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit down at my right hand. This is not a passing comment. This is a royal decree. Sit down. This is a a holy proclamation from Father God to the Son. You sit down at my right hand. Acts chapter 2, verse 34 through 37. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Yahweh says to the king, the Messiah, Now sit down at my right hand. Peter concludes that Psalm 110 is fulfilled as Christ ascends to the right hand of God after his resurrection and is seated next to the Father. So Peter concludes that the moment which Jesus ascended into heaven, when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he left the earth, ascended to the heaven before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, um, as he ascends, the Father declares before all of heaven to Jesus, sit down at my right hand. Peter says that was fulfilled. This is a moment in eternal history that was fulfilled as Jesus ascended to the Father. Sit down at my right hand. Peter says it's a profoundly important moment. And you missed it. Jesus rose and ascended to the very right hand of God, fulfilling the the prophetic declaration of David's psalm. The Puritan, Matthew Henry, wrote this. Sitting is a resting posture. After his services and sufferings, he entered into rest from all his labors. He wrote, it's a ruling posture. He sits to give law, to give judgment. It's a remaining posture. He sits like a king forever. Sitting at the right hand of God denotes both his dignity and his dominion. 
Henry says, Father God says to Jesus, sit and rest because Jesus has completed his work on the cross of Calvary. Father says to Jesus, sit and rule, reign and govern. Father says to Jesus, sit and remain as the established king forever. The Father declared in this moment to the all of the heavens and the earth that Jesus is the supremely honored king of both the heavens and the earth. At his right hand, Calvin wrote in the Institutes that Jesus being seated at the right hand communicates that Christ was invested with lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered into possession of that government committed to him and that he not only entered into possession of it once and for all, but he continues in possession of it until he shall come down on judgment day. Why should we surrender our lives to Jesus with willful obedience today? First, because the Father has commanded it. The Father has crowned Jesus as King of heaven and earth. The Father, in His wisdom and His sovereignty, decreed and declared that you should worship the Father through submission to Jesus. So John writes in 1 John 2.3, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me, Jesus says. Why? Because the Father has ordained Jesus as the supreme king, not only of heaven, but of earth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the chosen, anointed, ordained ruler. To deny Jesus is to deny the Father's ordaining. To deny Jesus is to deny the Father's proclamation. No man can say, I know God, but I do not follow Jesus. No man serves God without bowing his knee to Jesus, because Jesus is the king whom God has chosen. To deny Jesus is to deny the king whom God has chosen. Why should you serve Jesus faithfully? Because he sits at the right hand of God to rule. True worship to the Father is found only in full submission to his decree that we obey his Son. All roads do not lead home. There are not many paths to the same God. God has chosen one king. His name is Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity who has been crowned king by the Father. You cannot have God without him. Christianity is a totally inclusive religion. Any man, whoever will, come to Jesus. Christianity is a totally exclusive religion. You cannot come unless you come to Jesus. Now, the last phrase. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 through 26. He's talking about the resurrection. And he, he naturally begins to talk about the great resurrection, the, the last day. Paul said, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign in heaven until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this section of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is discussing the idea of the resurrection and actually slides into the judgment, the last day, when all things are summed up in Jesus. The resurrection, when every rule and authority will be destroyed, the last enemy, death herself, will be destroyed. But until that day comes, until the end, Jesus is to remain in heaven, ruling from his, his throne at his Father's right hand. 
when the day comes that Jesus gets up from his throne and exit heaven and steps his foot down in Jerusalem, that will be the last day. Until that day comes, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. You exist and I exist. We live in a great time frame who David calls until. You sit at the right hand of God until I make your enemies your footstool. You live in the day of until. He will get up and conquer his enemies. He will call the dead in Christ to rise. He will bring justice to the nations. He will deliver his creation from the full effects of sin and death. But today is the great until. You live in the season in which God specifically, through the activity of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is summing all things up in Jesus. You live in the hour in which the Holy Spirit is summing all things up. But there is an until. The sovereign plan of God is playing out. The Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost. After the extension of Christ Jesus. God tells Jesus, you sit down until I make your enemies a footstool. And again, we've bumped into Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves Rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing. According to the scriptures, there is a demonic plotting that takes place to come against God's anointed king. God's anointed king is resisted by rulers and those in authority according to scripture. There are those in our culture and in every culture, in our time and in every time, who are actively plotting against our king and his dominion. There's a demonic plan to attempt to overthrow the Messiah. And that demonic plan manifests itself in the lives of rulers and leaders and people with influence who are actively trying to overthrow his law, his person, his his character who blaspheme his name, who try to reorganize the order of his creation. They resist his grace. We've been taught that we were all basically good. How dare any man call us wicked, wicked sinners and depraved? Jesus taught that there is no man righteous. The anointed Messiah, according to the scriptures, is resisted, will be resisted. The anointed Messiah, according to scripture, has enemies. There are enemies of that Messiah. Psalm 2 says that the enemies plot against the Messiah. They plan, they organize, they orchestrate and organize their resistance. And Psalm 2 also says that God laughs at them. The thought of a created chunk of human matter shoved between your skull, plotting against the God of heaven and earth, makes him chuckle. No man will outwit our Messiah. No man will overpower him and out, overstrong him. We have, we have not evolved intellectually beyond the basic truth presented in his scripture. Science has not disproved his existence, not even close. There is no government that can decide to ban the worship of him. When governments do decide to ban Christianity, it typically ramps up. Iran and China are booming with believers today. Jesus will not be overthrown. And the scripture teaches that every man or woman that does not bow their knee to the Messiah will be cut down. There's a kingdom coming. You can surrender and declare yourself loyal to this invading dominion or you can resist him and be defeated. You catch that imagery, you're coming to Jesus as your white flag. You can have me. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 how things will end. 
Those who belong to Jesus will be caught up in glory. They will experience pleasures beyond your wildest dreams as they gaze upon the majesty of Christ and they savor his goodness and they experience his power. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine through 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that, that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus is on the throne at the right hand of the Father until God has made his enemies the place where he rests his feet. Until there's a day where Jesus will get up from his heavenly throne and step back down into the earth and set all things right. That will be a great day of, of, of justice. But Peter says, don't, don't think that God's slow in making that day come to pass. He's not slow. He's actually really patient because he doesn't want anyone to come to judgment. He wants all to come to repentance. And so God's, God's not slow in the second coming. He's patient towards you. So God's desire for you is repentance and life. He's not slow in causing Jesus to come back and establish and make all things right. He's patient, not wanting any to perish. Those who surrender their lives to Jesus and receive his grace will in this world know abundant life and in the world to come will know eternal glory. Those who systematically resist Jesus, who plot against the Lord anointed, will be brought low. They will be conquered. They will be judged. And on the last day, I want you to hear me say this. On the last day, no one will look at Jesus and call him cruel. The judged will look at Jesus and say, I resisted you my whole life. They will call him just. Why should you surrender your life today to Jesus with willful obedience? Because you exist in the moment of until. Every day that passes, those in rebellion are a little closer to the judgment that's to come. If you have not bowed your knee fully to Jesus today, you are living on borrowed time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You have no control of your life. You have no control of the time of your death. Don't put off your turning to God till tomorrow. You're not in control of your own timeline. You exist in the until. The scripture says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Not expected. It'll be quick. Why should you surrender to Jesus? Because he wants you to know real pleasure. Not the fleeting, short-lived pleasure that comes as you fall into temptation and please your flesh for a moment. But real, eternal joy and life and liberty and wholeness in the gospel of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. He wants you to have life. He does not want you to experience death. But death is coming. Judgment is coming. Today is the until. Someone from the worship team will come. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Adonai, says to my God, my owner, my master, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is God. Jesus is Lord Jesus is our owner, our master, our Adonai. Jesus is my Lord is not a a meaningless 
Christianese phrase that we parrot to one another because we've heard it repeated so often. Jesus is Lord is a robust theological declaration that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God and seated on a throne in heaven today, ruling and reigning as the supreme God, the supreme king of heaven and earth. Jesus is Lord is not a phrase that I parrot. It's a, it's a statement that I am fulfilled and alive in serving my king. I am overjoyed. I am brought immense pleasure in offering my life as a sacrifice to this king. It's my joy to serve him. I am for his kingdom. My life is caught up in the agenda and in the plans of my king. Jesus is Lord is not something I just parrot to you. It's a robust theological declaration that he is my owner, my master, my God, my king. What does it look like to be a Christian? What did it mean to be a Christian to the early church? It looks like willful surrender to the lordship of Jesus. It didn't look like perfection, not perfection. You're going to make mistakes. His grace is wildly good and his grace doesn't dry up. It's, it's not perfection. It's not, you're not God. Of course, you're not going to be perfectly righteous. But it, but it is glad surrender. It is joyful submission. It is a willingness to deny anything that dishonors him. You will struggle and wrestle with your flesh. You'll have to bring it to the cross. You'll have to cry out and ask for help. You'll make mistakes, big mistakes and all. And, and, and all of that's good and well. But Christianity, I want you, I want you to, I want you to hear me. Christianity to the early church and to the authors of scripture was not a social movement. Christianity was not a mere cultural phenomena. Christianity is not a southern tradition. Christianity is not a self-righteous sect that pats each other on the back and says, look, we go to church and put our ties on. Look how religious we are. Christianity is willful surrender to a beautiful king. Christianity is willfully submitting my life to to the lordship of Jesus and making him my master. Surrender even to death. So this morning, you can go ahead and stand to your feet. just want to ask us as a house and and I want to be sure as we move forward that Jesus is really our Adonai our Lord, our Master, our God I want to take a moment to worship we're just going to worship for a moment Um, Livingstone is going to lead us in just a couple choruses and and after she leads, uh, Miss Jackie if you guys have anything our our altar team will come up and get ready for ministry um, and you'll be dismissed but for a moment I I want to ask Livingstone to lead I want you to sing and I want you to ponder in your heart and just take a moment to ponder is Jesus my Lord and many of you yes of course he's your Lord I want you just to begin to thank him praise him make sure we're fully submitted to him I want you to relish this line of scripture the Lord says to my Lord sit down at my right hand I want us to honor him with the honor that heaven brings to him the honor that he's due Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.